Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. It's good to be with you this morning. We're going to continue our series on the explanations of Jesus that are found in the epistles of the New Testament. This morning, we're going to start with a problem that is identified in Greek mythology as well as secular psychology, but we're going to show how the solution to this problem is found in Christian theology. Understand that? We're going to start with the problem is identified in Greek mythology and secular psychology, but it is solved ultimately through Christian theology or through Jesus Christ. Um, So that's the path we're going to go on today. So stick with me for the first 10 minutes. This might feel like a like a bootleg Dr. Phil episode. It's eventually going to turn into a sermon, but give me a second to set up the issue that we're actually addressing, okay? All right, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump into Philippians chapter 2. Jesus, you, you love us so much that you gave us this word, this Bible, to have and to search out because it, it tells us about you, it tells us about the universe you created, it tells you about us, tells us about us. And Lord, as we look into this, God, show us what your word says. Illuminate this. Lord, there's a hundred different circumstances and situations represented in this room, but this passage in your word address every single one of them in some way. So, Lord, I pray that your anointing would apply and illuminate and instruct us. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this morning I want to start off. Don't hold this against me. I'm not teaching this authoritatively. I'm not saying I believe this. I just want to illustrate something for you by sharing with you the Greek myth of Narcissus. Okay? You might, might have learned this in seventh grade or eighth grade or something like that, and I've been sharing with you the last couple of weeks a little bit about Greek mythology and the difference between myth, myth legend, and history, but there is uh, a Greek myth that is going to help us set our minds in the right spot this morning, and it is the myth of Narcissus. Narcissus was a man who liked to hunt. He was a hunter. When Narcissus was born, he was so cute, so handsome of a baby that someone told his mother, he'll be fine, he'll live a long life as long as he never knows himself, as long as he never sees himself because he's too handsome. But if he, if he as we would say in Philly, once he smells himself, he's going to be a problem. And so for most of Narcissus' life, his parents never gave him a mirror. He never saw himself. He was a handsome, handsome dude. And uh, all the women in Greek loved Narcissus. In fact, some of the men loved Narcissus, but he rejected them all. And he could never find someone that he felt was good enough for him. And so one day, Narcissus was out hunting in the wilderness, and he got thirsty, and he saw a pond, and he went over to the pond, and he bent over to get a drink, and for the first time in his life, he caught his reflection. And he said, who is that? 
And he looked at his reflection and he fell in love with his own reflection. And he just laid there at the edge of the pond staring at himself, loving himself. In fact, he he actually at one point was so deeply in love with himself, he reached out to touch his reflection in the pond and it created ripples and he disappeared and he got depressed over it. And so he learned that if I want to keep staring at myself, I can't touch this water. He was so in love with himself, he could not bring himself to step away from the pond. So he laid there, but he also couldn't bring himself to drink from it. And so he just laid there for days and days, staring at himself, loving his beauty, loving how handsome he was. And he ultimately died. He, he el- Some stories say he died. Others say he killed himself because he was so depressed over the fact that he could not be with himself. And where he died, a flower sprouted up, and that flower is called the Narcissus flower. Okay, that's not a true story. I hope you guys know that's a Greek myth. We don't believe in Greek myths, but it illustrates an interesting concept. The followers of Narcissus are called narcissists. He didn't fund, found a religion, but he did found a way of life that we call narcissism. Narcissism or narcissistic behavior is what we would call self-absorbed. Now, the idea of a person laying on the ground, staring at their face in a pond sounds absurd, right? It's about as absurd as staring at your face on a cell phone, and filling your day with selfies and looking at yourself in the mirror all the time and observing yourself and looking at your own beauty and gazing at yourself all of the time. Narcissistic behavior or behavior that is like narcissists is self-absorbed. In, in fact, the DSM-5, which is a uh, psychological handbook of m- mental uh, disorders, this is what professional psychologists use, actually uh, diagnoses a condition, the narcissistic personality disorder, where people are so self-absorbed, and you know it's a disorder when it prevents you from functioning normally. You know, every, all of us are a little narcissistic. We all, have, we all love ourselves in some way, uh, but when it prevents you from functioning normally, having a job, having normal relationships, you know, fulfilling goals, that's when it's identified as a disorder. The DSM-5 identifies narcissistic personality disorder as having two types. There's grandiose narcissism and vulnerable narcissism. Grandiose narcissism is when you just think you're better than everyone else, you're more important than everyone else, you use the best words, everything you do is excellent and wonderful and awesome. That's grandiose narcissism. But there's also vulnerable narcissism where you're so susceptible to getting your feelings hurt that everyone has to tiptoe around you. So grandiose narcissism is kind of the bombastic, in-your-face, extroverted, I'm better than you, type A, driven personality. And then vulnerable narcissism is everybody needs a trophy. Don't offend me. If my feelings get hurt, you're morally wrong. Any of that sound familiar to you? It sounds like everything we experience every day now. 
Everything falls into either one of those two categories. I'm beginning to think that in the absence of a Christian culture, we are beginning to live in a narcissistic culture, that we have adopted a new god, narcissists, and we follow the religion of narcissism, and we adopt behaviors that are narcissistic. In an article in Psychology Today, which is a a popular but also academic scholar uh, journal on psychology, uh, Dr. Leon Seltzer, who has two PhDs and is a world-renowned psychologist, he's written over 500 articles for psychology today, he says this, I believe that self-centeredness is the very cause of depression, not just depression, but every illness in the world as we know it. I don't know if he's exactly right about that, but we would look at him as an expert. And he wrote an article in Psychology Today, and he said that self-absorbed behavior, narcissistic behavior, has led to two primary ailments or illnesses in the United States. The first is anxiety. The second is depression. I can hardly throw a stone without finding someone that has diagnosed, diagnosed themselves with either anxiety or depression. Whether a doctor has diagnosed them, they've diagnosed themselves with anxiety or depression. Anxiety is on the rise and has been for several decades in the United States. You know what else is on the rise? Depression. It seems like actually all this self-centered, me first, put yourself, look out first, look out for number one, self-love stuff is actually not leading to a healthy soul. It's actually contributing to Anxiety, depression. And so narcissistic behavior, narcissism does not help you grow as a person. It does not help you grow as an individual. Here are some of the symptoms of narcissism. Depression, anxiety, a feeling of entitlement, and an inability to sympathize or empathize with other people. Those are almost the four American core values today. Anxiety, depression, inability to empathize or sympathize, and then also a sense of entitlement. If narcissism and narcissists take their cue from narcissists, who do you think Christians should take their cue from? Narcissism is not an actual religion, but today I want us to think of it like, an, like a religion or a worldview or a type of faith. It has its God, Narcissus. Its followers are narcissists. They practice narcissism. Well, we have a God already, Jesus. And if we are Christ followers, we are Christians, and we do things not the way that narcissist does things, not the way that this person does things, we do things the way that Jesus does things, right? Well, Philippians chapter 2, I think, addresses the solution for selfish, self-absorbed, narcissistic behavior by demonstrating for us the humility of Jesus' incarnation. And the humility of Jesus' incarnation is the basis for our humility and why we are supposed to live as humble followers of Jesus. Now, really quickly, I want to review what I mean by the term incarnation. 
We talked about this quite a bit around Christmas time. Incarnation is the word that refers to Jesus taking on a human body. So we think of this at Christmas time. He became a little baby. Uh, Jesus has always existed and has always been God. I mean, you go back. You go back to Genesis one. The Father says, "Let us make man in our image," referring. He's speaking to the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus has always existed. We'll get to Colossians 1. Is it going to explain that? We've done John 1 on multiple occasions already. Jesus has always existed, but he be, he's always existed as God, but he became a man, and that's what we celebrate at Christmas time. That's what the term incarnation is referring to, the fact that he took on to himself a human nature. He didn't, he didn't look like a man and just trick us. He didn't put on a man suit. He became truly a human being. He didn't just pretend to be, play as, have a costume, but he actually, in his very nature, became a man. This is a unique idea to Christian theology because many other religions and belief systems believe that man can become God, that God becomes man, but only in Christianity do you find man, uh, sorry, do you find God becoming man, becoming human. So we're going to look at first uh, Philippians chapter two. We're going to do it slightly out of order. I'll read it in order. We're going to go slightly out of order here. We're going to look at the humility of Christ. We're going to look at the humility that is, ex- is expected of us. Then we're going to look at how God responds to humility. So this will be uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This will be on the screen if you don't have it in front of you. Paul is writing this to the church in Philippi. He says, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, United in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we're going to look first at verses 5 through 11, which refer to the humility of Christ. Now verses 5 through 11 are actually the center point of the entire book of Philippians. Like most of the other New Testament epistles that Paul writes, he is addressing some issues that exist in that specific church. One of the issues that existed in the church in Philippi is there were two ladies, uh, <clears throat> I think their names were Eudoia and Syntyche, 
who are arguing over things. And so in order to deal with the division that existed between those two women, Paul addresses the humility of Jesus. So this is part of Paul's solution to division or arguments or relational uh, issues is to talk about the humility of Jesus. Verses 5 through 11 are probably an early church hymn. This is probably something that they sang in their worship or recited or chanted. Now, it doesn't come across as very poetic or musical in when it's translated into English, but to them, this would come across as a poem or a hymn that they would use. It has kind of an artistic flow to it. For that reason, because they used it as a poem or a hymn, why do you do that? Why do you put something to song so you can memorize it, right? I mean, they... Remember, they don't have the book of Philippians until Paul writes it. So they would put certain theological concepts to song or make it catchy so that you could remember it. That's why Jesus, you ever look at the teachings of Jesus, it seems like, man, he was just all pithy little sayings, wasn't he? That's why the book of Proverbs is so catchy, because they needed to memorize it. So let's use alliteration, let's use word pictures, let's tell stories like parables, because people will remember those things, but people don't remember essays and speeches. So this is written as a poem or a a hymn or a song so that they can recall it. It is the center point of the book of Philippians. In verses 5 through 11, Paul outlines the humility of Jesus in his incarnation. In verse 6, and we'll just go through this verse by verse, Referring to Jesus, Paul writes, who, who, Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus, being fully God, and that's established over two dozen times in the New Testament, including here, did not regard equality with God something that he was going to take advantage of during his 33 years on earth. You know, Jesus could have played the God card at any time on earth. They even tried to tempt Jesus to do that. If you remember when he was on the cross, they said to Jesus, well, if you're the Messiah, surely a bunch of angels could come and take you off the cross. And you know, they were right. He could have done that. He could have ordered all the armies of heaven to come get him off of that cross, but he chose not to take advantage, essentially not to play the God card, not to make use of the divine attributes that he maintained, but he chose to limit himself to do only what you and I can do. This is in contrast to Adam, Eve, and Satan, who were not God, but wanted to be like God. Now you have Jesus who is God, but chooses to humble himself and not make use of omnipresence, um, which is uh, all-present, omnipotence, which is all-powerful, or omniscience, which is all-knowing, or immutable, which is unchanging. So even though he's God, he chooses to not take advantage of that, but instead to live as a human being for 33 and a half years and to limit himself, which leads me to the next part. Jesus willingly limited himself by becoming a human. Verse 7 addresses this, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Now that phrase, he emptied himself, has kind of caused trouble for the church over the years. What does it mean that he emptied himself? It means that he put limitations on himself. He restricted himself. 
Uh, I know most of you know this, or many of you know this. This week I had a minor surgery to remove my gallbladder. I have too many organs as it is, and so I'm just like, you know, it's an easy weight loss method is just have organs removed. So I was restricted when, I don't know, you ever had to wear a hospital gown? That was the first time in my life I'd ever have to, had to wear a hospital gown. And I was restricted in my movement. But you say, well, how are you restricted, Pastor Jim? Certainly that hospital gown is way flowier and looser than them tight jeans you got on today. And the hospital gown was like wide open, right? I mean, it's like a moo-moo, you know, which this is what I've always aspired to is that we would finally as a culture accept men wearing moo-moos. We're getting there. So this thing is flowing and wide, but because it's so flowing, it actually restricted my behavior. I did not want to move anywhere too quick, right? And not to get too crass, because I hear you laughing, nurse. I was not going to back into any rooms, right? I, I was restricted in my movement. There were things I could do, but I was choosing not to do. Well, when Jesus became a man, there are things he could do, but he chose not to do. He restricted himself to only what you and I can do. So did Jesus have access to all of the knowledge in the universe? Yeah, he did. He never lost his omniscience. He never lost his omnipresence. He never lost his omnipotence, but he willingly chose not to take advantage of those things for this time so that he could live as an example of a human being because ultimately that's what you and I have to do, right? You and I don't have all powerful uh, powers. You and I aren't all present. You and I aren't all knowing. And so Jesus willingly restricted himself. He put on, as it were, a human body and became an actual human and lived with all the limitations and restrictions that you and I have as human beings. That's why the all-powerful God of the universe subjected himself to his earthly parents. You know the story, I think it's in John 12, where The 12-year-old Jesus, uh, maybe it's not John 12, but it's in John where Jesus is 12, where Jesus, he gets separated from his parents and he's actually gone for three days and they find him at the temple, three or four days. They find him at the temple and they they kind of rebuke him, like, Jesus, what did you do? Or where, where have you been? Why are you making us worry sick? And he says, well, you had to know that I'd be in my father's house about my father's business. But then it says, but he subjected himself to them. Jesus submitted himself even to Joseph and Mary. Jesus submitted himself even to John the Baptist when he was baptized by John the Baptist. And John said, you should be baptizing me, Jesus. And Jesus said, well, we have to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus submitted himself to Caesar when he was crucified. Right? Jesus submitted himself to cultural norms and customs. He didn't have to. But because he was humble, he submitted himself to these things. The all-present one limited himself in time and in space. God is not only everywhere, he's all the time. Not to get too like back to the future on you. But he's not just here and there, but he's tomorrow and yesterday. Right? He's in the past, he's in the present, he's in the future. That's part of his omnipresence. Is not just his geography, but also his history. He's, he's in all places at all times, 
Yet Jesus decided to take on a human form, which means he can't be at all places or at all times in his human form. 33 and a half years, he lived in Israel in a human body. Does that make sense? He chose to willingly restrict himself to a place and to a time. He even, it says in verse 8, humbled himself to the point of death. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was not only humble in his life, he was humble in his death. I mean, he, he subjected himself, surrendered himself to an unfair trial where at any point he could have stopped the whole thing, right? He could have prevented it from happening. He knew that there were lies being told about him. He knew where this was going. He knew what was going to happen, but instead he, he chose to subject himself to it because ultimately he knew the purpose that he was fulfilling and doing it. He was not only humble in his life, he was humble in his death, and he ended up being crucified, which is about the most shameful way that a person could die at that time. Because you were often crucified, not only was it long and painful and drawn out, and the, the, the word uh, excruciating comes out of the word, the word for crucifixion, out of the crucifix is what excruciating pain means. But it was also shameful because he was probably crucified naked. He's probably put on that cross totally nude for hours. Talk about the shame, the embarrassment of not only suffocating to death on a cross, but having people mock you. You guys know that they were mocking and slandering and hurling insults at him while he's totally exposed to the elements and to the people. The shame. And this is the thing. See, if you and I were put in that situation, we would just have to take it. He did not have to take it. He chose to take it. He could have stopped the whole thing. Why did he choose to take it? Because of his humility. You and I can't handle one person looking at us sideways or saying one thing on Facebook wrong. Right? You and I can't handle one person getting in front of us in traffic. And we have to exert our omnipotence. But Jesus willingly, humbly subjected himself to the greatest shame that he could have been subjected to. So, Paul starts with explaining this humility of Christ. We're, we're early in Philippians. We're at the beginning of chapter two. He wants to lay out, look how humble Jesus was. That the God of the universe relied on someone to change his diapers. The God of the universe who doesn't need food put himself in a situation to be fed by, by a woman and a man. They carried him around. They cared for him. He, he didn't need that, but he chose to subject himself for a lot of reasons, to glorify himself, but also to set an example for us, and also to fulfill the necessary requirements of our redemption, because in order to redeem us, he needed to be like us. We needed a high priest that was able to sympathize with our weaknesses. It says that in Hebrews. We, have, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Not only was he tempted, but he, sh he shows us the blueprint for defeating temptation. 
that Jesus would choose to sympathize with us. He didn't have to do that. He could have said, man, you guys, I don't know what's wrong with you. (laughs) You're screwed up. You don't do anything right. He could have done that, but he chose instead to sympathize with us, to become like us so that he could show us the way forward. Because of his humility, we are expected to be humble. So I'm going backwards a little bit. Because in verses 5 through 11 is when we, he, uh, Paul outlines Jesus' humility. But before that, Paul tells them how to be humble. Or, so he actually applies the principle for them. Verses 2 through 4 outline the expectation of humility that is on us. Paul says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. The first thing he says, and he says it four different ways in verse two, he's essentially calling them to unity. Make my joy complete. He's saying, it would really make me happy. I would be fully happy, fully glad, fully joyful if you would have the same mind. If, you'd, if your mind would be united, and he's not talking about them all agreeing on every opinion. He's, I think what he's saying is, you all need to think like Jesus. If we can all tune ourselves to Jesus' mind, Not have the same opinions on this or that, but all have the same focus on, and and I think it's in Philippians where it says we have the mind of Christ. If we all tune our minds to Jesus, so having the same mind, he says maintaining the same love. So this isn't just about thinking the same, but actually having affection for one another. He says it would make his joy complete if they are united in the spirit and intent on one purpose. United in the spirit means uh, many things, but among that, it's an understanding that there is one spirit and that that same spirit that brought you to new birth brings your neighbor to new birth, brings the person across the pew from you to new birth, brings the person on stage, the person doing children's ministry to new birth. It's the same spirit. The same spirit that really got you hyped up during devotions yesterday was working in that person's life too. And so we're united in spirit and intent on one purpose. We are moving forward toward one goal. And for a group of people to move forward with one purpose, what do they have to do? Set their own agendas aside, right? If if everyone has their own, oh, I want to do this and we got to do that and we got to accomplish this and we got to lift up that and you're not going to have one purpose, right? There's got to be one purpose, And I would just guess from the writings of Paul that purpose is ultimately glorifying God. So he wants them to make his joy complete by living in unity with one another. Humility is absolutely required for unity. It's uh, probably impossible, but even if it's possible, it is not preferred that everyone always share all the same opinions. That is called uniformity. 
I think it's probably impossible to achieve that because we all come from different perspectives and we have different experiences and we understand things differently. Um, so always agreeing on everything all the time, I just don't, I don't think it's possible, but even if we could, I'm not sure it would be a good idea. <laughs> Unity is achieved through humility, where we prioritize. It's, it's not even an agreement of opinions, but it's more like an agreement of priorities, that ultimately Jesus is the highest priority. Ultimately, his glory is the highest priority. His plan for redemption, his mission on the earth is the highest priority. And that requires humility. So no church is ever going to experience unity without experiencing humility first. What else is expected of them or of us in this passage? Verse 3 says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Don't be self-centered. Don't do anything from selfishness. This is a hard one because sometimes you don't even catch your motives until you're either in it or after it. But as you crucify yourself, those motives get purified over time. We do things out of selfishness. We do things out of selfish ambition or vain conceit is just a way of saying it's empty. There's no actual value to what we're doing here. Sometimes they can be subtle little things that we say, little things that we do, little uh, actions that we take just to kind of puff us up a little bit, just to kind of make us look good, just to kind of make us feel good. Damn, yeah, this might hurt other people, but uh, makes me feel nice. He's saying don't do anything out of that motive. Don't do anything for that purpose. He continues, not only don't do anything from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. This is only a hard truth to accept because of the culture that we live in. Because it's so countercultural. With humility of mind, consider others as better than yourselves, more important than yourselves. <laughs> I don't know, Jesus. I feel like no one's more important than me. I feel like no one's comfort is more important than my comfort. No one's ideas are better than my ideas because that's essentially what we're told from the, from the beginning, from an early age. I hate cliches my personality is wired that I see I see everything in the cliche so you know the cliche you can do anything you put your mind to I believe that therefore I believe that if you haven't done it it's because you haven't put your mind to it you lazy that's why I hate cliches because they're not fully developed they're not fully thought out right you can be anything you want to be. Don't listen to what other people say about you. Has led to a lot of unself-aware, selfish people. Am I wrong? Well, I think I'm right. I mean, listen, the, I'm terrified to live 
in a society where everyone is uh, is taught to expect that they're never going to experience difficulty, reach out and take what you want, climb over other people, step on their necks, do whatever you have to do to get ahead, make yourself happy. That is not how a society should function. It should be make sacrifices for other people. I don't know, please and thank you. Be humble. Work for the good of the community. That's what I want to live in. So consider others as more important than yourselves. Verse four four continues. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So I think in verse four, he does say, don't merely look out for your own personal interests. So he's not saying you can't do what is right for you. You you must do what works for you, but don't do it to the detriment of other people. Don't do what's right for you to the point where it's going to hurt another person, though. Think of their needs as well. Consider other people and what you do. When you put a lawn chair out to block your parking spot in May, just kidding, I'm just... But it is May, so we can stop doing that, right? Um, You know, like, especially for those of us that live in, I don't know if I'm just being specific here, row homes or tight-knit communities with dense populations, we all need to think of one another, right? We all need to consider our neighbors. We all need to think about how our actions are going to benefit or harm the people around us, how they're going to affect other people. Um, And so we don't want to just do things for our own interests, but also take into consideration other people. The whole theme here of the application is Paul saying it's not always self, 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 but look outwards. Consider others. Think about other people. This is the opposite of narcissism. This is the opposite of narcissistic behavior. It's actually Christ-like humility to think about how we are going to impact and affect other people, the things that we say, the things that we do, how's it going to have an impact on our community, how's it going to have an impact on our family, how's it going to have an impact on strangers and neighbors, how's it going to impact those things. Now, God loves humility. He is attracted to it, and he rewards it. It says in verses 9 through 11, this is how God rewarded the humility of Jesus. For this reason referring back to the humility of Jesus, God highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the interesting thing about Jesus' humility. Because Jesus went so low, What did God do? Exalt him. Jesus did not lift himself up. He brought himself down so that God could lift him up. Does that make sense? I think sometimes we want to short circuit that process like, God, I'm going to save you the trouble. I'll just exalt myself. I will lift myself up and we'll we'll get through this a lot faster. And then you can be busy with whatever else you got to do. 
Because Jesus went low, God took Jesus high. Now, there's a way in which this is unique just to Jesus. You are not going to be given the name that is above every other name. Okay? And no one's going to bow before you and confess that you are Lord. Okay? This is just for Jesus. But there is a way that this principle applies to you. It's in Isaiah. It's in Proverbs. It's in Psalms. It's in James. It's in 1 Peter. And you can just memorize this phrase. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. <clears throat> That's a Hebrew idea. That's a Greek idea. That is a Jesus idea. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you ever want to be on the wrong side of God, be proud. And the biblical concept of pride is self-absorbed, self-centered, Self, self, self. That's what we're talking about here. God opposes the proud. It means that you're going to be going upstream. When you become proud, you're going uphill now. You're going against the grain of how God has ordered things to work. Have you ever, this phrase against the grain has been meaningful to me lately. If you ever have sanded a piece of wood or cleaned wood, you want to work with the grain. Right? You want to go with the grain. What happens if you go against the grain? Splinters. God has instituted a grain in the universe. A, there's a grain to the kingdom. When you go against the grain, you get hurt. Right? And so the pride goes against the grain of the kingdom. Pride goes against the grain of the character and the nature and the attributes of God and what God is like. Pride goes against how he designed us to work. But he gives grace to the humble. Grace is empowerment. I, I, I just see it this way. It's not a lake. It's not a pond. It's a stream. Streams or a river. It's moving. When you're proud, you're moving upstream, which means you got to work harder to get where you're going. But when you're humble, you're going downstream, which means you get there way faster than just in your own efforts because there is a current. So when you're proud, you are going upstream. You have to exert extra energy just to take a small step. But when you are humble, just a little bit of energy takes you a long way because God is giving you grace. He is empowering you. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So God rewards humility. He loves it. He is attracted to it. He's drawn to it. He rewards Jesus' humility in a way that is unique and that he exalts Jesus, gives him the name that is above every name. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's not going to happen to you. Well, you'll be on the knee and you'll be using your tongue, but you won't be receiving. You'll be delivering. But how it does apply to you is you go home today, you can either be proud or humble. You can either experience the opposition of God or the grace of God. Even if this is the, the, how it applies to us as believers, as followers of Jesus, God may oppose you. That doesn't mean he's going to condemn you, but he is going to trip you up. 
He is going to do whatever he can to humble you. You know, we're told repeatedly in the New Testament, you know how you're supposed to get humility? Humble yourself. It's, it's something you decide. I almost think you don't even have to pray for it because God has delegated our humility to us. Repeatedly, humble yourself, humble yourself, humble yourself. You don't need to wait for an angel to show up with a humility pill. You know, you don't need to wait for the right song to be sung or the stars to align. If you read it, like, okay, (laughs) I guess I'm supposed to humble myself. You already have the capacity to choose humility. It's not something that's floating off in the sky and you got to wait for it to land on you. You already have the capacity to choose humility. If you choose humility, you will then receive God's grace, his enabling power. Ultimately, we have to determine whether we're going to be followers of Narcissus or followers of Jesus. Everything in the world right now wants to make you a disciple of Narcissus. Everything in the world right now wants you to look in a mirror and practice your daily affirmations. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. That's a Stuart Smalley reference from 1980s Saturday Night Live, and only four of you got that. But I watched uh, some Stuart Smalley videos this week, and I was like, man, what was funny back then is like reality now. The, the world wants you to be a disciple of Narcissus. And listen, I know we're told putting yourself first, self-love, self, 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 it's good for the soul. Guys, the data says otherwise. Shouldn't anxiety be going down, but it's going up? Shouldn't depression be going down, but it's going up? Shouldn't marriages be doing better, but they're going down? Uh, right? I mean, it's not working. Self-centeredness is not working. The data bears it out. Our culture bears it out. It is not working. The solution is Christ-centeredness. Christ in us, the hope of glory, it says in Colossians. If we will be Christ-centered, he will help us to be uh, oriented toward others. Now, one little quick correction before we do communion. This does not mean killing yourself to make other people happy. As you serve other people, it better come from a place of overflow and gratitude for what Jesus has done for you. If you're serving other people to like get their affirmation and make yourself feel better, that is still about you. Is it not? So the lives of service that we live on behalf of other people are not to make us feel better. That feel better feeling has to come from Jesus. He's redeemed you, saved you, reconciled you to God. That's where that comes from. It is an overflow of what God's already done in your life. And we also do it within biblical confines, which means you don't destroy your family so that you can go serve other people and you have some sort of Sabbath rhythm in your life. I mean, God has instituted that you only have six days worth of energy at a time. And again, if you go against the grain of how God has created the universe, you're going to get hurt. 
you know, however you practice Sabbath, for me, it, it can't be Sundays. It needs to be Mondays, so it might be different for different people, but you better take a break every seven days. You know, the, if you think you're adding points to your God account because you haven't had a day off in four weeks because you're just so spiritual, you're so spiritual you violated God's law, congrats. You know, like it ain't that spiritual really because potentially you're doing it to scratch some sort of itch in your soul that Jesus is the only one that has any business scratching. Does that make sense? So I'm not sure that there's much we could do that is more humbling than take communion. Because when I think of communion, I think of a couple things. Number one, the death of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. And secondly, <laughs> the fact that we are to examine ourselves. It's to actually say, okay, Jesus, there's some stuff in me that I just know it doesn't please you. Or, or is there? Is there some stuff in me that doesn't please you? What do you want to deal with today? So if you receive communion elements on the way in, you should have. Go ahead and get those out. You can uh, start the long process of opening them. <clears throat> Every time we take communion, it says that we are to proclaim Jesus' death until he returns. Proclaiming Jesus' death reminds us of his humility, right? His blood was shed for you, and remember the blood in the cup of the new covenant, his blood was shed for you because Jesus is humble. The wafer reminds us of his body, which was broken for you because he is humble. Right? We invite the Holy Spirit to examine us so that we can be humble like Jesus, so that we can embrace humility. Uh, I want to ask you to read with me our communion declarations from 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to read these together. I'm going, to give, I'm going to pray for the elements, give you time to do this self-examination, and then when you're ready, you can take the elements. Let's read this passage together. We believe that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We believe that in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We declare that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. With reverence and solemnity, we declare that whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. We advise that everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Jesus, we receive the cup of the new covenant as well as your body as tokens of your humility, your sacrifice for us. And Lord, I pray that they would serve as a means of grace for us to walk in humility as well. 
to follow your example, to consider others as more important than, than ourselves, to take others' needs into consideration, to make sacrifices on behalf of, behalf of others, and to not live as if we are the center of the universe. Lord, we dedicate this time to self-examination. Show us, Jesus, any areas that you want to deal with in our lives where maybe we have forgotten your lordship. We want to apply your lordship to every area. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So take a moment, and when you're ready, you can take the bread and the cup. Oh uh-huh. 
deserve the praise Worthy is your name this place you alone deserve our praise you're the name above all names be exalted now in the heavens as the glory fills this place you alone deserve our praise you're the name above all names be exalted now in the heavens as the glory fills this place, you alone deserve our praise. You're the name above all names. Be exalted now in the heavens. As the glory fills this place, you alone deserve our praise. You're the name above all names. Stand together, you deserve the praise. Worthy is your name, worthy is your name, Jesus. You deserve the praise. Worthy is your name, worthy is your name. Let's declare together, be exalted now. Be exalted now in the heavens as your glory fills this place. You alone deserve our praise. You're the name above all names. Be exalted now in the heavens as your glory fills this place. You alone deserve our praise. You're the name above all names. Be exalted now in the 
as your glory fills this place You alone deserve our praise You're the name of our name up to him sing your song to the Lord hallelujah to your name we worship you Jesus you're the humble king you're the worthy one you're exalted you're the humble king humble things we could do right now is if during that time of self-examination if Jesus put his finger on something is to deal with it you know not put it on a list and hope we get to it someday but hey we're here might as well deal with this stuff now so I, I'm going to give you an opportunity if you want to come up and pray there is there's no one here to pray with you today but maybe you don't need that and come up and actually finish what he started. You can come up and use the front to pray. Otherwise, I want to bless you and send you out. So Jesus, we receive this, this invitation into a humble life. A life of putting you first. A life of service to others, Jesus. Trusting that you will meet our needs. Trusting that we can rest when you say to rest. Trusting that we get our value from you. Trusting that we get our worth from you. That we don't have to perform or earn anymore. We receive. We inherit the kingdom. So we bless you, Lord. 
We choose humility. We choose to be followers of Jesus. Help us, Lord, to always be wrapped up in how humble you were and are. To be caught up in that example. I pray that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. If you'd like to come spend time up here praying, you're welcome to. Otherwise, it's good to see you, and I'll see you next Sunday. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.